0: Because four times a year or so, uh, we have Jeremiah Morris come down from the city where he pastors this youngest church, Seven Mile Road. Now, Seven Mile Road, Jeremiah started a few years ago, meets at St. Thomas High School. If you know the city, that's Memorial and Shepherd. And if you have folks down there who are looking for a good church, uh, recommend them to Seven Mile Road. Uh, Jeremiah and his wife, Ashley, have become uh, good friends for Gail and me, and really, Uh, Good friends of our church, if you come regularly to Wood's Edge, you know and appreciate and love Jeremiah. Jeremiah, come forward. Would you guys give him a warm welcome back to Wood's Edge, please? Thank you, man. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Always always a privilege to be here with you. Now, isn't it true that so much of life is shaped by our expectations, We admit that that's the case. Maybe it's in a a simple way. Recently, a friend telling you how the best movie ever just came out, and you go to the theater. Maybe you've had this experience, and you sit down and you start watching, and you're thinking, "Really, this movie?" (laughs) Because the expectations got so hyped. You'd heard from everybody it was going to be this like life changing experience. you Go, no, not this. Or it's the the vacation that you've prepared for and saved for and planned for, and you took the family and. Everybody complained the whole time. It didn't quite pan out. And you go, why do I I build up in my mind what these things are going to be? These expectations of things that are supposed to deliver our satisfaction and our joy, but often don't. Having proper expectations is so key in navigating the midst of this world. One of the realities I've had to come to is that I'm very naturally an optimistic person. I just expect the best the cup is definitely half full. And as I have come in contact with and come to believe and trust and love Jesus, the gospel and my optimism does really good things in my soul, but there's also a dangerous underbelly. There's a dangerous underbelly that I can at times begin to expect things of the world that God's never promised. My optimism can become a superficial optimism that tries to stretch across the realities of living in a broken world, a smiling face that says everything's going to continue to be okay. When in actuality, there are moments and places and ways where our expectations need to be rightly adjusted. In some ways, we need like the, the kind father hand on our shoulder, we need God to come and father. us. So it reminds me of the old Jerry Seinfeld bit that talks about how for kids, everything is up, up, up. They say, hold up, wait up. I'll clean up if I can just stay up. And parents, everything is down. Slow down, calm down, put that down, get down, right? And so there's this, there's this reality that in our faith, we can at times have a, an immaturity, that assumes everything is up, up, up. We can assume that this pursuit of Jesus is a triumphant march from victory to victory. But what we have to come to terms with is adjusted expectations, not laying down optimism in favor of cynicism or pessimism, but having a robust biblical realism that can give ballast to our souls and help us to be a people that persevere through all that life brings us. And so this morning, in, a, in hopes of being a people that know what it means to persevere, to endure, to make it through all that life will bring to us, I want to invite you to spend some time with a dear friend of mine that I've been spending a lot of time with lately. He's the author of Ecclesiastes. He refers to himself as the cohelot. That means the assembler, the preacher The one who gathers people together And I like to envision the Kohelet of Ecclesiastes As a man that, that wears orthopedic shoes <laughs> Who shuffles a little bit Maybe holds his back from just the pain of a long life And he's kind of like the farmer's insurance guy He comes walking and he goes I know a few things because I've seen a few things And throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, what he says over and over and over is, I've seen this thing, I've seen this, and I want you to to pay attention. In essence, he says, I want to pay some of the the dumb tax for you. I want to run out in front of you in the places where you have begun to develop expectations based off of a superficial optimism that if you're not careful, will set you up to have the rug pulled out from under your feet. He's going, I, I just want to explain to you what it's like to really live in the world and hopes that as you confront that, you have what it takes to endure and to persevere, to live wholeheartedly in the midst of challenging circumstances. In many ways, what we are going to learn from the Kohelet in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 is, is very much like the Stockdale Paradox. The Stockdale par- Paradox, so-called, is, is described by Jim Collins in his book, and it's named after a man... Uh, named James Stockdale, who is seven years a prisoner of war. And James Stockdale, the, the paradox of his life was this this is the way he described it. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. And Collins describes this conversation with Stockdale. He says, Well, who didn't make it out of the prisoner of war camps? And he says, Oh, that's easy. The optimists. The optimists? I I don't understand. The optimists, they were the ones who said, We're going to be out by Christmas. And then Christmas would come and Christmas would go. And then they'd say, Well, we're going to be out by Easter. Easter would come and Easter would go. And then it was Thanksgiving and then it was Christmas. And then they died of a broken heart. You see, what Stockdale was saying is that when behind enemy lines, when in the difficult realities where there's, there's brutal facts that are facing us, he's saying we must have hope that we will prevail in the end, but we must have something within us that enables us to engage reality, to engage the brutal facts before us. And I believe that this this cohelet, speaking wisdom in the book of Ecclesiastes, will extend to us an offer, an invitation to what it means to live in the midst of biblical realism, to deal honestly with what it means to live in a broken world. And so I'm going to invite you to to look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we're going to, in essence, have an invitation to the whole of the book. We're just going to study the first chapter to get oriented to its themes in hopes that this morning it encourages us towards a robust biblical realism. Just before I read from Ecclesiastes, permit me to remind you what the prophet Isaiah says about the scriptures. It says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. We would be really wise to pay attention. Let's start with the first three verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the preacher, or the Kohelet, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In these first three verses, the Kohelet who's introducing to us biblical realism gives us the themes that give shape to the whole 12 chapters of his book. And I think he's trying to make a point. Did you hear it in verse 2? Five times there was one one word that was repeated. Vanity of vanities. It's like vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And the truth is, vanity is not a great translation of the word in the Hebrew there. You may have another translation in your lap there that says something like meaningless. Meaningless also kind of misses what the author is delivering. The word in Hebrew is hevel. Can we all say that together? Can you say Hevel. Yeah, very good. Hevel means smoke, fog. This morning it was it was cool. I arrived here early and as I walked out onto the campus, I could see my breath. That is hevel. It's something that when you look across a field and you see the fog hovering there and you think that's something that has substance. I could go put my arms around that. I might maybe be able to can't hold on to that, manage it, manipulate it. But as you get close, you realize there's nothing there. The the author of Ecclesiastes, as he begins to set out on what it means to live in a broken world, says, let me tell you, hevel, hevel, all hevel. And what he's beginning to sketch out for us, this is a word that he's gonna use 38 times in 12 short chapters. And what he's saying is, we live in a fog bank it's all foggy. He's going to say things like, "Well, let me tell you. I saw this thing. A righteous man died young. A really wicked man prevailed and was wealthy and lived to a late age." Hevel. I know this other guy says that had a lot of money and he invested it improperly because he was greedy and he wanted more and he lost it all and he didn't have anything to leave to his kids. He goes, "That it's Hevel. He he talks about one thing he sees after another. I saw this, I saw this, and quite frankly, the fog is thick. And in essence, what he's inviting us to realize is that there's so many things around us that look like they have substance, like they can deliver. But he's beginning to help us understand that in fact, paradoxically, there's nothing there. As he's setting out his theme, he's saying, all is Hevel. And then he describes what he's talking about, the the realm in which he's talking about. He says, under the sun. Did you see that in verse 3? Talking about under the sun. He is engaging all of his thoughts and all of his writings on what does it mean to live in the soil of real life, on this earth. Under the sun is his phrase to describe what it means to be in a broken world. What it means to be east of Eden have been cast out from god's presence and what we know about being east of eden is that it's hard the curse that was laid over the created order was that thorns and thistles will infect the ground and by the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread it's hard to live in a broken world so says the scriptures so says the kohelet and so he's inviting us into some honest realism he's saying will you Will you deal honestly with me this morning about what it looks like to live in a broken world? And I believe that if we will unflinchingly explore east of Eden with the Kohelet, what he will deliver to us is something of substance that doesn't call us to pretend like the fog is not there, that doesn't call us to try to sidestep every storm and sadness, but actually gives us the confidence and the endurance to live through it. You see, the preacher is saying all is Hevel under the sun. And then he goes on an exploration. How are we going to be a people that survive in the midst of all of this challenge? He's going to, in chapter one, explore two potential options for navigating the Hevel. And he's going to realize that neither ultimately satisfies. One is work and one is wisdom. Neither work nor wisdom can deliver us from the fog. I I want us to see how he develops this idea. At the end of verse three, he had said, Uh, what gain is there by all of our toil under the sun? In verse four, he continues that thought saying, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind, it blows to the south and then it goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind and on its circuits, the wind returns. He's wrestling with what sort of, Work can we do in the world to make sense of all of the heaven? And so he's looking at the natural order and beginning to realize the world is marked by lots and lots and lots of activity and very little progress. The winds go around, generations come and go, and the earth is still here. Not much has changed. I was, I I ran track, and I always hesitate saying something like that at Wood's Edge because Jeff Wells is your pastor. I sort of ran track. Um, My event was the 3200, which is just not that cool because it's eight laps in a circle. You just run in a circle. And I remember at times I would be standing at the starting line in competition thinking, this is kind of silly. We are about to just absolutely spend ourselves to race one another back to this point. (laughs) Eight times round and round to get back here. And in essence, what the Kohelet is saying, that's life. That's what it feels like sometimes. We work really hard and we push hard and we push and push and push and we get to the boulder to the top of the hill and it goes tumbling back down. And we go, I don't know. I don't know if I'm making progress. I don't know if much is progressing. And he goes on, he says in in verse 7 All streams run to the sea, but the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. I don't know, it's like a perverse sense of encouragement for me, right? This recognition that the Kohelet is saying, let me me adjust your expectations and tell you what it means to go to work in the world. Some weeks, no, most weeks, hmm, I think the Kohelet would say, all weeks, if we're really honest. We work and we work and we work. We're tired at the end of it all, and then we wonder, did I accomplish anything? He's saying, yeah. That's what it means to work the soil east of Eden. God hasn't promised us something different. It doesn't mean that we won't find joy in it. In other places in the book of Ecclesiastes, he'll show us how to find bits of beauty and joy in everything that's coming. But what he's saying is, first, we have to have adjusted expectations. It's hard. And he goes on to say this, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it can be said? See, this is new. It's already been in the ages before us. I'm so given to entrepreneurship. I love new things. I wanna start new things. I'm a church planter and I train church planters and I like new. I was the first one that I thought generationally to have lived in in Houston for my family. I also was under the impression that I was the first one in my family in ministry. I was doing this new great thing, starting a church right down in the city. You know, Uh, last December my wife and I were doing some research online, and we found a man named James Ivy Moffat. James Ivy Moffat was born 180 years ago. He is my great 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 grandfather. He had a white beard down to the middle of his chest, and the picture I found of him, he had a Bible firmly under his arm because he was an ordained minister. And he lived at 601 Hadley Street, one and a quarter mile east of where I preach every Sunday. And as I looked at this, I thought 150 years ago, he's walking these city streets. I'm going, I am late to the game. I think I'm so new and fresh. And the realization is, you you know, the next verse says, there's no remembrance of former things. That's why we think it's new. I thought it was new because I didn't know James Ivy Moffat existed. It says, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I didn't know James Ivy Moffat existed, and quite frankly, nobody's going to know I existed or you. You see, the Kohelet is introducing us to reality. He's saying, let's let's take inventory of the brutal facts of East of Eden because it's only there that we can start to develop something that will persevere and be strong and endure way down in the valleys. If we're expecting work to deliver our satisfaction and enjoy, we are on a fool's errand. Your work will not deliver you from the fog. It can't. Leonard Wolfe said it this way, political leader, husband to Virginia Woolf, famed author. He said this, I see clearly that I have achieved practically nothing. The world today and the history of the human anthill during the past five to seven years would be exactly the same as if I had just stayed home and played ping pong. Instead, I sat on committees, I wrote books, I wrote memoranda. I have, therefore, to make this uncomfortable confession that I must have in a long life ground through between 150,000 and 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. Aren't you glad you got up and came to church? (laughs) And he doesn't stop there before, before we can drive through to the hope that he's delivering us. Let's look at one more way that we're tempted to think we can deliver ourselves from the fog. He says, work won't do it. But then interestingly, he turns the corner in verse 12 and he says, neither will wisdom. He says, I, the the Kohelet, this preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem and I have applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. In essence, he's going, okay, I'm not gonna totally engage in that rat race. I'm gonna think wisely about the world. He says I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, it's all hevel. It's striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So he got there. He said, "I am incredibly wise." I applied my heart to know wisdom and to no madness and folly and I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind for in much wisdom is much vexation he who increases knowledge increases sorrow do you hear what he's saying there he says, we learn to think deeply and wisely about the world. We're not just going to be, be given to this consumeristic model of this is how I'm going to deliver life. So I'm going to be a deep thinker and I'm going to think my way through it all. I'm going to engage wisdom. And he gets to the other end and he says, in fact, what wisdom did for me is just increase my vexation and sorrow. I became more present and aware to all the ways that the world is broken. Wisdom delivers to us the right questions to ask. But wisdom often doesn't tie them up in a neat and tidy bow. It doesn't give us the answers and bed all those questions back down. Wisdom unearths the realities of what we're doing, and we begin to realize this is even harder than I thought now that I'm seeing it through the eyes of wisdom. The Kohelet would say, Ignorance is bliss, wisdom is vexation. And so here we sit engaged in this journey, trying to make sense of how do we navigate the fog bank of life. Our work and our toil cannot deliver us from the fog. Thinking wisely and deeply about everything does not deliver us from the fog. And in a sense, the Kohelet is bringing us to this place in the scriptures to to be honest and open-handed and needy. I love the role that this book plays and the scope of God's revelation throughout history. That the Kohelet, by the end of the book, says, I exist to poke and to prod. He's, he, he paints this picture of he has a, a goad in his hand, which is like a stick with, with uh, nails at the end of it. And he says, this whole book should feel like I've been poking and prodding you. Does it feel that way? He's going, are you gonna settle down there? No, Keep moving. Work's not going to do it. Wisdom is not going to do it. Keep moving. And it's uncomfortable to encounter this. But ultimately, he says, like the good shepherd, he's goading us to finally get to the place where we would see and experience the fear of God, the beauty of God in the midst of all of life. Do You know that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, there's a word, hevel gets translated into a Greek term. And that same Greek term gets used only three times in the New Testament. I think in order to see the way that these ideas find their fullness, I want us to look at one of the places where that word is used in the New Testament. The word for hevel, for fog, it shows up in the New Testament in Romans chapter 8. If you have a Bible, please flip over there with me. It will also be on the screen for us to read. Romans 8, verses 18 to 25. An experienced preacher would have marked it before he, uh, he started quoting it. Um, So Romans 8, 18 to 25 tells us about the the New Testament realities of heaven. I want us to listen clearly. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to Hevel, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What's the Apostle Paul saying here? I think it's first important to take note of what he's not saying. This is after Jesus has stepped into the world and there's been a cross and an empty tomb and he's applying it to the story. And what he doesn't say is this. There is no more heaven. All's good. All's cleared up. What he actually says is we still groan in the midst of the fog. But we groan with hope. You see, adjusted expectations, what does it mean to be a Christian living in the world? It means hopeful growth. It means that we are a people who serve a God who took on flesh and came to the earth. And he walked this world as the great preacher, the ultimate cohelet, walking in perfect obedience and righteousness and teaching with perfect wisdom and insight. He can make crooked things straight. He has come to make all the broken things right again, to make all the sad things come untrue. This is what King Jesus does. And when he was bleeding and dying on the cross, what he was doing is he was swallowing the hevel, the curse that like a wet blanket lies across all of the created order, touching every square inch of this earth in which we live, touching the realities of our own hearts and souls, it's ever present. But Jesus said every bit of it, I took into my very body and I put it to death in a tomb. And I conquered and have come back to life. And so this is the reality, not perfectly, not truly. We still live in the fog bank, but truly he has secured victory. And we hope with anticipation that one day he will come again. And like the noonday sun, when he shows up, the fog will run for cover. You see, we are a people like James Stockdale that can live east of Eden and survey all of the brutal facts of our reality and say, do your worst because I'm already secure. I can't see sometimes up and down and right and left because the fog is before me. Do you hear it? It says a hope that you cannot see, is no, a hope that you see is no hope at all. He says some days you can't see it because the fog is thick, but we know it's there because Jesus has taken up residence in our heart. Oh, yeah. We live as a people. You see, this is what allows us to be a people that endures. This is not a triumphant march from victory to victory. We limp behind a crucified and resurrected savior. And we groan. We groan and we wait for the day when he comes back to make the sad things come untrue. But we're not afraid of valleys. And we're not afraid of fog. Because our God conquers those things. And so we walk with confidence through the fog bank, holding to Jesus with adjusted expectations, groaning with glorious gospel hope. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Oh God, thank you. I thank you that you tell us the truth. Thank you that you love us enough to tell us the truth. So I pray that anybody here that has been believing lies, believing that we should just float above everything and not experience heartache, that the places where we encounter heartache, that where, where folks in the room are struggling to believe that you're present and you're good because things are hard, I pray that your truth would restore them this morning that we would know, God, that you are present with us in all that life brings and that you will walk with us through valleys and through fog banks. We thank you, Jesus, that you loved us enough to be swallowed whole by those realities and you emerged victorious and alive. We have resurrection hope this morning in you, King Jesus, no matter what fog bank we're in. For that, I rejoice. Create in this community the freedom to be a people that groan but who groan with hope jesus we love you we love you and we say come quickly it's in your name that we pray amen amen Amen.